Welcome to Global Stage, a podcast highlighting academic and policy-oriented international research on democracy and human development. Global Stage is a production of the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. Hello, my name is Grace Ortusar. I'm a PhD student in the economics department at the University of Notre Dame. Today, our guest at the Global Stage podcast is Lakshmi Iyer. Lakshmi is an associate professor of economics and global affairs at the University of Notre Dame. Lakshmi, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Glad to have the opportunity to chat. So today we have a packed agenda for this conversation. I want to talk to you about some new projects that you're leading at Notre Dame and also get to discuss one of your recent papers. But before we get into that, can you tell me about your research expertise and how you became interested in those topics? So my two main fields of research are development economics, and within development economics, I focus a lot on political economy. These are topics at the intersection of politics and economics. So how do political institutions and political leaders shape economic development outcomes and questions of that sort? As to how I became interested, you know, I grew up in India, which is a developing country. And when I was growing up, it was actually much poorer than it was and than it is today. And so it was very natural that I would become interested in development economics and how to foster economic development in low-income countries. As I was growing up, I also saw how much politics and political leaders mattered in shaping economic policy. And so it was very natural to think, well, let's investigate this in much greater detail. So in my work, I've investigated different aspects of this. I've investigated the role of history and historical institutions, investigated the role of women in leadership and whether gender quotas matter and when and how and other such questions. So we can get into more details right. later. That's fascinating. So one of these new projects that you're leading at, at Notre Dame is the Building Inclusive Growth Lab. This was established at the Kellogg Institute last year. And I'd love to, you know, if you could tell us more about this effort and especially how graduate students can engage with the lab. So thank you for asking me, Grace. This is the big lab. It is called Building Inclusive Growth. It is still very much in its infancy. It's not yet as big as we would like to be. So let me just describe the aims of the big lab. We have sort of three big aims. One is to provide research infrastructure to produce insightful and impactful academic research on inclusive growth in low-income countries. What do I mean by research infrastructure? I mean research support of all types. So having research assistance, contacts in developing countries, coordinating across different parts of the university, such as grant raising, grant management, policy outreach, hiring, and so on. Okay, so we want to provide this kind of centralized infrastructure for doing research. The second thing is to showcase Notre Dame's academic strength in development economics. So obviously, this kind of generalized research infrastructure can happen for any kind of research, but we are really strong in development economics. I don't think people know that we actually have now 10 faculty members whose primary field is development economics, and they are in both the economics department and in the Keough School. And together, we address topics which are incredibly diverse, all the way from macroeconomic growth, trade, migration, gender, political economy, education, agriculture, health, you name it, we do it. We also embrace a very diverse set of methodologies. So we do theoretical modeling, structural estimation, field experiments, archival data collections, primary surveys in the field. So we do all sorts of things, and we want to use the lab to make us sort of more than the sum of our parts. 
We are all have individual research agendas, but we want to come together in a more institutional fashion, which can help both to share resources and secondly, to also build the pool of research for academic and policy audiences to showcase it all together. And I think the third thing is to provide a holistic analysis of economic development. So the name has been chosen very carefully, Building Inclusive Growth. Let me just tell you why. The growth part means we are going to discuss underlying obstacles to macroeconomic development. So we explicitly welcome macroeconomic and economy-wide analysis. This would also include international factors like trade and migration and so on. The inclusive part means we want to not lose sight of issues of distribution and inequality. Just overall growth is not the be-all and end-all of human development. It really depends on how the growth is distributed. And in terms of building, we want to think about the building blocks to achieve uh, such inclusive growth. So this would include analysis of specific policies or mechanisms which are important enough to generate large-scale inclusive growth. That sounds really exciting. I think that, yeah, as a graduate student, that will be like a source of new opportunities. So that's wonderful. Like you mentioned, as you were describing the big lab, that there is uh, collaboration across disciplines. And you yourself as an economist have study issues from different perspectives. So I'm curious about what you've learned from other disciplines, such as political science. And how do you think economics can contribute to other disciplines as well? So as Grace, I told you, my major field of research is political economy. And so obviously I read a lot of political science. I referee for a lot of political science journals. And now I'm actively collaborating with several political scientists on specific projects. I think there are huge gains to be had from such collaboration. There are also, you have to be careful in setting up these collaborations in order to make sure that everybody gets what they want out of it. So in terms of what can economists bring to the table, I think we are Our relative strength is our quantitative training. So all economics PhDs, for instance, are trained to understand formal mathematical models of human behavior. That is not obviously the only way to analyze any given situation, but we are trained to read and understand those things. We're all trained to conduct relatively sophisticated econometric analysis. So we have a good handle on data and large-scale data and how to analyze these things. So I think those are really strengths which we bring to the table. In my collaborations with political scientists, I do find myself doing more of the data-oriented work, which is just a reasonable distribution of of work. Mm -hmm. I think what other disciplines do better are in understanding the context of a study, both in terms of the history, the society, the political politics at work. And I think in working with political scientists, I feel they also give more thought to things like uh, site selection. Where should we study this phenomenon? What is the correct site to study this? And also things like measurement. And we can discuss this when we talk about women's empowerment, which is a very difficult concept to measure. Even Mm -hmm. if people have a shared understanding of what it means, it's just hard to measure in practice. And so I think it's not that economists don't understand these issues or don't know that these are important. I think it's partly we, we tend to do almost always econometric analysis of large end data sets. And so we're always looking to find those. Mm -hmm. And I feel that maybe sometimes we miss out interesting topics or areas to study as a result of focusing on specific types of methodologies. So other disciplines are are more welcoming of small end studies, say comparative case analysis, or choosing cases very deliberately to study for specific insights. And sometimes the choosing of the cases can be done based on much larger data sets, but then you have 
if you have a smaller number of cases to study, you go deeper into those areas. You sometimes, if you're depending on your field, you may do a large, spend a long time there and do deep ethnographic studies and so on. And there's value to that kind of very deep contextual knowledge. I, as somebody who's new to the discipline, but I completely agree. I enjoy some of the like courses and, and papers that move across disciplines. And this is kind of a, a good segue to talking about one of your recent papers. You've mentioned issues of, of measurement and thinking about concepts that it may be hard to think about with neat indicators. So as, as a way of introduction, this, this paper is titled Field of Her Own, Property Rights and Women's Agency in Myanmar. This work is co-authored with Alexander Fertig, Alexander Hartman, and Edmund Malinsky. And so, yeah, a, few of the th- a couple of things I, I'd like to talk about this paper is, first of all, how this project got started and, and how you ended up working with this team of researcher. And then, as you already alluded to, specifically, when you look at women's agency as an outcome for this paper, what do these concepts mean and how do you make them more more concrete to be able to measure them? So... In terms of collaborations, I think it's a very interesting story how collaborations happen, how they evolve, and also how you engage in fieldwork and the costs and benefits of doing that. I was invited by Eddie Maleski, who's one of the co-authors here, and a separate researcher, Marcus Tausig, who were both working in Myanmar and Vietnam and other areas of Southeast Asia, They wanted to examine the effect of a specific land program, and I'll describe that in a second, in Myanmar. And since I had been interested in property rights for a long time and published on it, they felt I would be a good person to join the team. So we started talking to this NGO who was advising the government of Myanmar. Myanmar had newly democratized, and this was way back in 2017. And the government was planning a big land to the landless program. Obviously, that would be concentrated in areas where there was some surplus land to be redistributed. And as someone who studied property rights, I was very excited by this chance to examine how the transfer of this very important asset would shape the economic trajectories uh, of households. Thus began a long series of meetings with the NGOs, with these uh, other two uh, investigators, with Innovations for Poverty Action, which is another NGO in Myanmar who were going to do most of the field work and surveys and so on. Our NGO partner wanted also to include some qualitative analysis into the evaluation plan, such as focus group interviews and so on. And that's where we dragged in Alexandra Hartman, who is a political scientist at University College London. Then as we were shaping this thing and planning our survey, one of the people who used to work at IPA Myanmar, Alexander Fortig, mentioned to us that he had come across this very interesting banking policy in Myanmar, where you could get a certain amount of loans for each acre you held. It was for mainly for rice growing up until 10 acres and after which you would not get any further loans. And he said, well, what happens if you have 11 acres? Would you not want to then subdivide your plot, uh, have a 10 acre plot and a separate one acre plot, put the one acre plot in somebody else's name in your household and that person can apply for a whole separate loan. And we're like, that's very interesting. That is a very logical economic response from the household to do that. But what was interesting to us was that, well, who's that separate person going to be who's going to have the land in their name? It's most likely going to be the wife of the primary landholder, which is almost always men Uh, in Myanmar. In many, many other countries, this is the case, that women have very few formally titled claims to land. 
And so we felt that there would be a very interesting gender angle to investigate that because of this bank lending policy, which was not really gender targeted, there could be this unintended consequence of formally empowering women by having their names on land certificates. And so we included Alexander Fertig. We said, well, why don't you have work as a co-author with us in actually since you brought the policy to our attention? And that was the nice part about doing actual field work with an NGO was that the NGO wanted to focus on the land to the landless program. So they wanted to survey a large number of landless people, but also some landed people for comparison. And we started doing the survey work in um, November 2019. We had a very productive discussion with them where we said, well, you know, you want to do this, but we also want to investigate this additional question. So is it okay if we also survey people on either side of this 10 acre discontinuity in the policy? And they were okay with us doing that. So we actually told the survey team, in every village you go to, please find at least a few households who have more than 10 acres and Mm -hmm. also conduct a detailed interview for them. So it was a nice collaboration where obviously we wrote, for instance, this was supposed to be a background or baseline survey. And we wrote a nice report for our NGO and they were going to start advising the local governments on how to actually implement the land to the landless program. We had uh, talked with them and they had agreed to do a randomized control study of this. The idea being that since they have limited resources and staff, they could only advise a certain, a few local governments at a time. And we said, let's pick those in a randomized fashion so that we can actually have some people in some areas getting transfers of land earlier than other places. And Mm -hmm. we could see how their trajectories evolve. All was going well. Our baseline survey was concluded in January 2020. And then we know what happened after that. So the world shut down, (laughs) including Myanmar for COVID. We had planned a next round of survey towards the end of 2020. But obviously, there were difficulties in surveying face-to-face because of mobility restrictions all over the world. The actual program of Land to the Landless was not able to be implemented Mm. because obviously the NGO was not wanting their staff to go out and travel too much and, and risk infections and so on. So we were waiting kind of in limbo for things to become normalized. Then towards the end of 2020, we started talking about maybe doing surveys on the phone if we could not get, since it was becoming unclear how long this pandemic was going to last. And then Myanmar in February of 2021 experienced a military coup. This was a problem for us because the NGO... So many things out of your control. (laughs) Just when we thought we could now start doing, find a workaround, this happened. And this had two issues. One is we had no idea what would happen to the land to the landless program we were supposed to be evaluating. Mm -hmm. We did not know what the military government would do about it. And I still don't know what's happening. The second was that our NGO, which is an international NGO, felt that they could no longer, in good conscience, continue collaborating with local governments who under Mm -hmm. the military regime, which is obviously a fair point that they just felt they could not collaborate with government officials Mm -hmm. under this new regime to for any purpose. Their staff had also experienced harassment and because they were part of an international NGO, they had many good reasons. And so the the intended project actually has just disappeared, I think. Mm -hmm. So the nice thing is we got, since we had the baseline survey data, we could still look at this effect of this banking policy on distribution of land and whether actually people title Mm -hmm. uh, land in the name of the woman. And therefore... What happens to the overall status of women, or at least the women who have this title in their names, right? Do they then go out and start doing 
different types of economic activities? Uh, do they have more money in their name? Do they feel more empowered in terms of decision making within the household and so on? So those were the questions we were invest- we started to investigate. Hmm. It seems like there's so many projects that good projects that come out of like other ideas. You start with a different project and that doesn't work out or falls through, but you end up with something that's very interesting, but maybe wasn't what you originally planned to do. That's right. I think so. it's very important to keep your mind open and not just say, I'm going to do exactly this project, mm-hmm. especially when you're going to do field work of any sort, because there's so many uncertainties. It's important to keep your eyes and ears open for other types of interesting questions that come up. So yeah, you've talked a little bit about the outcomes. You talked a little bit about already the uh, sort of identification strategy, the empirical strategy, looking at households that have plots of land around this 10-acre cap for agricultural loans. Before we jump into the results, what were your expectations about what you would find and sort of also maybe address the mechanisms behind if women, if the spouses are getting land under their name, what did you expect would happen to these outcomes of women agency and empowerment and how? Yeah, so, you know, exactly you could think of many things that could or could not happen. Mm -hmm. So one idea is that you know, what empowers women, right? So by empowerment, we mean giving, having the freedom to make their own decisions about things that are going on in their lives. That's a very broad definition, and I'll get to measurement in a, a little bit. What would having formal land rights do to women's decision-making ability? The idea is that, you know, if you already were had considerable autonomy in decision-making, then maybe this doesn't really change much. And this we can think of as mostly the situation in sort of more developed nations where, say, women are already educated to the same level as men. They have often have jobs and incomes of their own, which are not particularly dependent on the men in their lives. And so you may imagine that getting an extra piece of property solely in their name is not going to make that much of a difference. They were already pretty good at making their own decisions. In a context like Myanmar, I think only 12% of households or or, or even lower, uh, very few households had any land titles which were in the woman's name. That makes it an interesting setting it to look at this question. It makes it a very interesting right. setting, right? So this, they were not already empowered. Women are much less educated than mm-hmm. men. They most these are rural households we're talking about, and so they are. They don't have many non-agricultural jobs. They sometimes have small non-agricultural enterprises mm-hmm. and so on. This is a very different context in that sense. So we might the best case scenario would be that this translates to. Additional sources of credit for the woman, because this is, uh, remember, this was all part of a bank lending policy. Mm -hmm. And so now they get these loans and they are able to perhaps translate it into greater agricultural output. Perhaps that leads to more them being able to set up a non-agricultural enterprise of their own and having their own income stream and having their own autonomy in this sense. The financial or economic autonomy also contributes to autonomy of decision making within the home. They have a greater say in what goes on uh, in the household. That's the best case scenario. Now, it may not happen. It may be that social norms, for instance, are very strong. And so even if women become very empowered, very economically independent, it may not change how the dynamics of how things work within the household. Mm -hmm. It may or may not lead to greater, even greater economic empowerment of women, right? They may just have hand over that additional credit they get with that land to their husband. And I'll talk about some, we found some of this idea in in these kinds of ways we're trying to measure. So it's not obvious that this will always be a nice linear relationship and it will always lead to this kind of change. 
And so we were measuring all these outcomes. So we measured what loans the household had, whether the loan was given to the husband or the wife, whose name was the loan on, what kind of agricultural productivity did they have, so how much uh, land did they plant and what did they grow and how much was the value of the output, whether they had non-agricultural enterprises uh, on the side. And we talked about women's empowerment. It's difficult to measure this. So we had we took inspiration from various other pieces of the literature. And I think our one main measure is just asking women how much say do you have in the decisions of your household? So we asked them, do you think you have a, and this has been used in many, many countries around the world, how much say do you think you have in decisions about spending on food or spending on education, spending on healthcare, spending on children and so on, making fertility decisions and mm -hmm. so on. So we just asked them and it was all on a scale of, you know, very little, a little bit, quite a lot, sort of, you know, they could pick whatever answer they wanted and we could combine these into an index. So we had two separate indices. One was only about agricultural decisions, which was, are you involved in decisions about buying and selling land, about livestock raising, about what to plant, about hiring agricultural labor and so on. And the second was about these expenditures on various topics uh, within the household. And, you, you know, they are actually, it, it varies a lot across these different components. So only 7% of women say we are involved in decisions about buying and selling land. And only 26% say that we are involved in choosing what crops to plant on the land, which was a um, little sad. Yeah. <laughs> they were 65% of women say we are involved in decisions about gardening. So mm -hmm. obviously these are much smaller kitchen garden type of things, but on the bigger plot, it's much right. less. It was also a little depressing to see that only 16% of women said that we are actually involved in decisions about fertility mm. uh, within the household. These are not very empowered women by these measures. And when we looked at what happens when the household has more than 10 acres of land, well, it turns out that they are actually more likely to have additional plots, right? So they split their land into multiple plots. They are actually more likely to have more land certificates. So these mm -hmm. different plots have so their own certificates. That would be sort of like the first stage. So the, this uh, Fertig hypothesis was correct that people were splitting this and they were getting the loans separately. And they were yeah. titling the extra land in the woman's name. In the woman's name. So they're about 12 percentage points more likely to have formal land certificate titled in the name of the woman. But, but. <laughs> <laughs> so we also find a little they're also more likely to have loans in mm -hmm. the woman's name, but nothing else changes. Mm. So when we look at this uh, decision-making indices about agricultural decisions, expenditure decisions, they don't change much at all based on whether you're on which side of the 10-acre cutoff. That was quite quite surprising to me as I was reading through the paper. So we don't have a full explanation about why, mm -hmm. but we just, perhaps it is that they just don't, this is not big enough. They get a little more loans, but then the question is what happens to the loans after they get them? What happens to the loans inside the household? We don't really know, right? Who actually uses that money? We don't find additional agricultural output from women's plots. As I said, all the knock-on effects we hope to find are not happening. Right. So, of course, the policy was not geared towards improving gender outcomes anyway, but we were hoping that, you know, certain things like this, which it, it's actually important to examine non-gender targeted policies mm -hmm. and see what they do. And in this case, it looks like they don't do that much to improve women's decision-making autonomy. It seemed to me that these somewhat surprising results also kind of open up 
a window or a door into some other questions. And maybe, yeah, thinking about like under what situations or context do these legal rights on property or other types of public policy can actually impact what goes on inside the house or gender distribution. I wonder if if your team and you have thought more about that. And that is absolutely mm-hmm. right, Grace. I mean, so it's it's really an open question about what will change things like gender empowerment and so on. There's a lot of work being done in many fields on this question. What we were looking at is, you know, does economic empowerment lead to other types of empowerment? Mm -hmm. And people have looked at other ways of having economic empowerment. So, for instance, people have looked at providing education or skills training to women. People have looked at providing financial autonomy to women. There's a very interesting paper by a whole bunch of co-authors, I think it's Erica Field, Charity Troyermoor, Rohini Pandey, and so on, which we discussed very recently in the Women in Economics Club here at Notre Dame, and where they were looking at the effect of giving the woman her own bank account. So it, it was financial autonomy in the sense, as I said, it was kind of the next step from what we have been talking about. We said, okay, they get more loans. What happens to the loans after they come into the household? And here they were actually trying to make sure that the money which women's, women earn remain in their own separate bank account. Mm-hmm. And they found that that is actually quite effective in encouraging women to work more outside the home and feeling more empowered as a result. So that's one very interesting study I would urge uh, people to go out and read. So that was a sort of trying to trace out how to retain this uh, autonomy, uh, so how to maintain the economic autonomy, so to speak. Yeah, no, I think that's so interesting because you you can have something on your name, right? But that's not enough. And then there there needs to be more steps in between. So yeah, I think that's fascinated by that work. And and I think we've covered a lot of the questions I had just thought about for this paper. Now I'd like to ask you of where you see your work going forward. What are new projects that you have in the pipeline? Uh, if you have a few minutes to talk about that. Yeah, so I have a, a bunch of different projects in the pipeline. So some of them are on gender and others are not. So I have a paper in progress where I'm trying to look at gender quotas and not just whether you have a gender quota or not. So I did a paper earlier on looking at India's gender quotas. And I found that 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 leads to much more reporting of crime by women victims. It encourages them to come forward. And this was a political gender quota in the sense there were more elected women leaders at the local level. And that really encourages women victims to come forward and also the police to treat them better. What we're looking at in this next paper is well, does it matter how much the quota is? So India had a 33% quota and the increase to 50%. Does that make a difference? That actually does not make much of an additional difference, quite surprisingly. We said this is a bit surprising. Let's look at it in a different context. We looked at Indonesia, which has a gender quota, but it's a candidate quota. So one third of candidates have to be women. And there is quite a high compliance with political parties on that aspect. But many of those women don't get elected. So actually, the fraction of elected women varies from zero to 20%. So much fewer get elected. But again, when you look at reporting of crimes against women, it doesn't make a difference how many women there are in local government. So that, I think, is very interesting when looking about you know gender empowerment. The, having a quota likely matters. I think it sends a bigger signal to society at large that things are different now. You have people are encouraged to change their behavior, but minor variation in the details of the quota probably is not a big deal. At least that's what our results seem to indicate. Now, it may matter for some other types of outcomes. That's one sort of gender-related project. I'm doing a bunch of stuff on what we call decentralization. 
which is delegating more power to local level governments rather than retaining power at the national or provincial or state uh, upper level governments. And there can be many ways to do this. So a lot of uh, people make a distinction between political decentralization, which is having leaders at the local level be elected rather than appointed from above. So Mm -hmm. that's uh, giving citizens more empowerment and more voice in the decisions of local councils. And there could be other types of empowerment, which is things like administrative decentralization, which means local governments are effectively given the power to set policies or administer public services or oversee them and so on. There could be fiscal decentralization, which involves giving local governments the power to collect taxes and make their own spending decisions rather than being dictated to from above. So we have a paper on administrative decentralization in India, and which finds quite interesting results, which says that if you do it halfway, you're going to be worse off. What do I mean by halfway? So in India, some states decentralized by saying, well, now local governments are responsible for providing health and education services, but they didn't give local governments explicitly the power Mm -hmm. over the officials who deliver those services. So those officials were still reporting to the state government, not to the local government. Mm -hmm. And in this part way sort of situation, we find this is unambiguously bad. Infant mortality rates go up. Primary school completion goes down. These are very important development outcomes we care about. While if you did it properly, which is you gave local governments authority over both the officials and the process, then we, a bit surprisingly, don't find much improvement, but at least we do not find worsening. So I think it's a very cautionary tale that doing policy Mm -hmm. is hard. You need to be aware of these distinctions of policy. And if you want to do something, do it properly. Don't go halfway. And in terms of political decentralization, I'm going way back in history. So I'm going back to the early 20th century in India, where local governments were got political decentralization. They got the right to have more elected members in local councils, mm-hmm. both at the town level and at rural local bodies. And we're trying to see how that changed spending priorities. Yeah. Did they spend more on things which would benefit citizens directly, like education and health, versus things that would benefit the colonial government, like perhaps roads uh, might affect them more, which is to, you know bring resources to ports and things like that. And do you think that this historical work is, I mean, it seems like even though it's historical, like the implications of that work are maybe perhaps relevant for today. Do you see it that way as well? I definitely see that because there are still a lot of places in the world where local governments are not very decentralized. They don't have effective decision-making power and they often don't have elected members. So I think it's we can learn a lot from the historical circumstances. Well, thank you, Lakshmi. This has been very interesting and I look forward to you know continued conversation outside of, of the studio. I'll just yeah. put in a little bit more about the big lab since we began yes, with that. Please. We are as I said, we're still in our infancy, but we currently have a little bit of seed funding. We have three pre-doctoral students that are, you know, research assistants who finished their undergraduate degree working with us. We run this development data boot camp in May every year for other undergraduates and master's students who want to work with the big lab or other in general. It's a kind of research training program. And over time, as I just wanted to outline our bigger plans, yes. we want to have summer RAs, that is undergraduates who are still in doing their degree, but want to have some research experience over summer. We will continue hiring pre-doctoral students, that is students who finished their undergraduate. We want to include PhD students, hopefully somebody like yourself, Grace, mm-hmm. <laughs> in within the big lab. And 
eventually perhaps even postdoctoral students. All of that requires growing our resources and finding more funding, which is another area we would want to work on. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Grace. You've been listening to Global Stage, produced by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies. Listen to other episodes here or wherever you get your podcasts. Global Stage also can be found online at kellogg.nd.edu or by asking your smart speaker to play Global Stage. 